Heavenly Father, that is our prayer this morning, that the powers of hell would vanish, that the darkness would clear away with the light of your glorious gospel, so that our hearts might proclaim, Alleluia, Lord Most High. In his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It's really hard to go anywhere right now without someone wishing you Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. For some, it is a merry season filled with traditions and family. For others, it's just a hassle, expensive and inconvenient to travel. For some, though, it's also a lonely season because of distance, separation, or grief. There are chairs that are empty around the dining table, some from loss, some that were never filled, and some that were never grown. The book of Ruth is a beautiful story. It's about a grieving life redeemed by grace, resulting in joy restored. Let's look at it in those three sections. The first, let's consider the grieving lives of Naomi and Ruth. Life was hard for Naomi in the beginning of this story. Naomi and her husband Elimelech, they left Bethlehem, which means house of bread, because there was a famine in the promised land. And rather than seeking God's solution, they sought their own in the foreign country of Moab. Perhaps Naomi had been a reluctant follower of her husband to Moab, but her husband died very soon after traveling there, and then she made the choice to stay there an additional ten years. You see, sometimes you make choices that lead you down a path, and sometimes life just makes choices for you. And these choices made by individuals or by life, they can lead to unexpected and unanticipated grief. Consider Naomi and Ruth. Naomi experienced what? She experienced famine. She experienced the death of her husband, and she buried both of her sons. No one makes these choices. And then she finds herself in a vulnerable position. She's widowed and childless in a time when family was imperative for survival. In verse 12 that we read, we also heard that Naomi was older. That meant that she didn't have parents to return to. It meant that her prospects for marrying again or having more children was dim at best and that she had no older children to care for her. How was she feeling? We don't actually have to guess. If you read the end of chapter 1, when she and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, decide to return to Bethlehem, her friends don't even recognize her. And they say, could this be Naomi? And her response is this, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. There's a play on words there. Naomi means sweet. So Naomi says, don't call me sweet. Call me bitter. Because my life 
is empty and I feel like a nobody. Let me just ask you for a moment. Many of us might think, what's the big deal? It's family, it's a big deal, it's loss, but, you know, get a job, get over it, right? But for all of us, family is a big deal, and loss is a big deal. And if it's not family for you, it's something else. What would it take, what would you lose in your life that would make you feel like a nobody? What is it that you have to have in order to feel significant? Is it a vocation? Is it career? Is it physical beauty? Is it something like respect? And if you lost that thing, would you too feel empty and like a nobody? Look at Ruth. Ruth seems more like an innocent bystander sucked into the chaos of Naomi. She experienced infertility and widowhood. She was left with no husband and no son. No one makes these choices. And then when Naomi decides to leave Moab, she offers her daughters-in-law an out. She said, go back to your mother's house. Perhaps the two of you can be remarried. Perhaps you can have children with another husband. There is a much easier life if you will just return to your parents who are still living. With many tears, Orpah, who loved her mother-in-law, made the easier choice. But Ruth, Ruth made the difficult choice. It is a hard, hard 50-mile journey from Moab back to Bethlehem. It's only a four- to five-day walk, but in chapter 1, verse 1, we are told that this story is set in the days of the judges. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, it's scary. It's a time of wickedness and evil. And so for two women to make this hard journey, that in and of itself was a risk. But Ruth faced even more than that. She was leaving her homeland, her family, her culture, and her religion. She wasn't going to be able to Skype and to fly home for the holidays. This was goodbye. And where was she going? She was going to a foreign country. She was immigrating. She was going to be a Moabite living in Israel. The Moabites and the Israelites, they didn't get along. She faced a hard life, a dim prospect of marriage. What Jewish man was going to marry this Moabitess? She would be an outsider, and she would be about as welcome as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah, said one pastor. Later in the story, we actually get a glimpse of what she faced Ruth is gleaning in the fields of Boaz something that the poor did. And Boaz said to her, Stay in my fields because you may be harmed in someone else's, and I will tell my men not to harm you. And Naomi counseled her later to stay in Boaz's field because she might be assaulted. You see, she is prepared for a difficult journey, a life of loneliness, economic hardship, and racial Injustice. Yet, in the midst of their grieving lives, we see glimmers of faith. Even in Naomi, 
we see that she loved her daughters-in-law. She's telling them, may the Lord grant you rest. But in this moment, she loves her daughters-in-law. She wants them to find rest. But she also uses the covenant name, may the Lord grant you rest. She doesn't say, may your gods give you rest, but may the Lord give you rest. I don't have time to unpack that, but I think that's a glimmer of the remnant of faith in Naomi, that even though she was bitter, she still had faith. What about Ruth? She's even more amazing. As I've studied this story this week, I've just been blown away by this woman. You know, in the Hebrew Bible, the order of books is actually different. And Ruth follows Proverbs. Do you know the last chapter in Proverbs? It's Proverbs 31, the picture of the godly woman. And then you see it illustrated in the life of Ruth. Ruth loves her mother-in-law. She pours out her heart in one of the most beautiful speeches in the Bible in verse 16 and 17. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything, but death parts me from you. Ruth is raising her level of commitment. Whatever happens to Naomi happens to her. She is binding herself. And the question that I ask myself is, why? Why would she do this? And I think the answer is because Ruth had a conversion to the covenant Lord. Look at verse 16. Ruth said, my God. That's an authentic accent of faith. There's a personal relationship. She uses the name Yahweh. In verse 17, she says, where you die, I will die. She wasn't converting to Christianity in the Old Testament for the sake of friendship. She wasn't saying, Naomi, I'll travel with you. I'll stay with you. But as soon as you die, I'm going back home. She says, no, I am going to die in the same land that you die. I am an Israelite, and I will die in that land because I am one of you. And then she says in verse 17, may the Lord deal with me. She is making a covenant promise in the very presence of God. She is standing before his throne, calling to him. She's using his covenant name. She's speaking as one of his people. You see, what Ruth is saying to Naomi is essentially this. I don't want blood to define my family, but I want the grace of a covenant God to define our family. You know, we could take a lot of time and talk about friendship here. It's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. I'm reading The Fellowship, The Story of the Inklings by Philip and Carol Zaleski. And I've been thinking a lot about friendship. And you see it illustrated here that real friendship involves time. Where you go, I will go. It involves commitment. Nothing parts us but death. And it involves conviction. Our God. Think about this for just a moment, how we apply this to our lives. Like Naomi, we too face choices in the middle of grief and sorrow. When the famine comes into our lives, 
Will we leave the promised land and travel to Moab? Will we believe the promises of God? Will we trust the Word of God? Or we will do something contrary to the Word of God and try to solve our problems in non-godly ways? You see, for Christians, there's always the temptation to go to Moab, to doubt the promises of God, to doubt His goodness, to not follow His Word, and to try to solve our problems on our own And friends, that is always a recipe for disaster. But consider Ruth. There's something for us to learn there as well. We learn that conversion to Christianity can be a difficult choice. Remember this. Jesus promised His followers that they would suffer. That there would be hardship. And I think that we as Christians that I as a pastor do a disservice if I promise you that if you follow Jesus, it will be mistletoe and candy canes forever. It will be that way ultimately. But until Jesus returns, there is hardship. But friends, this is the truth. It's worth it. The sacrifices may be great to follow Jesus But it's worth it because of the sacrifice that He made for us. And one day, someday, the curtains will be pulled back and we will know. We will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it was worth everything that we went through. That when we get a taste, when we experience heaven, we will literally go through hell on earth to be with Him forever. The choice may be difficult now, but the choice is worth it in the end. The second part of this story is this. It's all about redeeming grace. Naomi and Ruth, they start scratching out a meager life in Bethlehem. Ruth goes out to glean the fields and she happens upon the fields of Boaz. Boaz is extremely kind and gracious to her. And her response in chapter 2, verse 10 is this, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz knows her story. He knows all about her. He provides food and water for her. He tells his men not to harm her, and he sends her home with even more grain. When she returns home, Naomi is blown away by the day's haul, but she's even more astonished that she's wandered into the field of Boaz, someone who can be a redeemer for their family. You see, during this day and during this time, it was kind of a work for welfare program that once the land had been given to your family, if, a, if you lost it, if you sold it, the nearest relative could buy it back, could redeem the land, and then they would be obligated to marry the widow and to have an heir that would carry on your name forever. And so Ruth and Boaz developed this relationship And then Ruth, somewhat surprisingly, goes and proposes to Boaz and says, let's get married. And Boaz's response is great. He says, you have not gone after younger, more handsome, or wealthier men, basically. Apparently, Boaz was not going to be on the next episode of Bethlehem Bachelor. 
We're not told why, but for some reason, he was still unmarried. He's impressive for sure. He's godly. He's wealthy. He's respected. But he had no family of his own. You know, one little bit of trivia is that Boaz's mother was probably Rahab. So he was the son of a prostitute. And that might give us a little insight into how he was treated. But Boaz agrees to marry Ruth, but then there's a twist because there's a closer relative that has the legal opportunity to buy back the land. And so Boaz goes to the city gate where legal transactions took place. He calls out the nearest relative and offers the land. And he says, yes, I'll take the land. But then Boaz says, but remember, you'll also have to marry Ruth. And the nearest kinsman redeemer declines the invitation Because it would be too great a cost to him. So the door is open for Boaz. So at great cost to him, he buys back the land knowing that it will go to Ruth's, Naomi's heir. Now, again, stop and think about this for just a moment. I want you to think about the story of Ruth. And I want to point out to you what is not here. What's not in the story of Ruth? If you read it, there's not a prophet. There's not a burning bush. There's not a dream. What is there? There is mundane faithfulness. There's nothing miraculous here. Ruth just happens to be gathering food in Boaz's field. And Boaz just happens to be someone who can be the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and her land. There are no miracles, no prophets, no dreams or visions. And there is no doubt, though, that God is working below the surface. Below 10,000 ordinary events to work out all things for His glory And their joy. That's the doctrine of providence. And friends, what what are we to do? We're to keep seeking His grace. We're to keep pursuing His blessings. We're to trace the rainbow in the rain that God's promises are not in vain. You see, when we consider God and His grace, we experience both grief and joy. Grief that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And grace that it's not as bad as it could be. And it's not the way that it will be. You see, there are grieving lives. There is redeeming grace. And the result is joy restored. It's what we read in chapter 4. By grace, joy was restored for Naomi and Ruth. Ruth found a husband and had a son. Naomi's circumstance was changed and her heart was softened. She realized the value of her daughter-in-law was worth more than seven sons. Their circumstances were changed. But what about us? What if our circumstances are not changed? Is joy really restored? The question is, how can there be joy in God when there is no joy from God? The answer comes at the end of the story in verse 22. 
You can imagine the first readers, the Jews, reading the story of Ruth and saying, why is this included in our Bible? It's about some random Moabitess, some random widow who comes in and marries Boaz. Why did they get ink in the Bible? Like, what's the big deal? They don't understand until they get to the end of Ruth. Ruth ends with what? A genealogy. A son had been born to Naomi. His name was Obed, and he was called what? A redeemer. The father of Jesse, the father of King David. The redeemer is more than Boaz. The redeemer is Obed. A child born where? In Bethlehem. You see, the way I think that Augustine said it first was that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed and the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. As we look back at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ, we see more clearly what it's all about. You see, Ruth was a redeemer. Boaz was a redeemer. Obed was a redeemer. But they were all shadows of the redeemer, Jesus Christ. You see, Ruth is a picture. And you know this well. You know that when we have young children and when they can't read, we have picture books and we show them a picture of a dog and a horse and a cat and they're learning words because in their immaturity they cannot understand it yet. And that's the same way in the Old Testament that we are children and so God gives us pictures. He gives us images Something that we can see like the sacrifices of an innocent animal and blood was shed so that the worshiper could be accepted. It teaches us about atonement and reconciliation. We see Jesus in the robes of the priest, the incense, the decorations of the tabernacle and the temple. Each were pictures with meaning of salvation, acceptance with God. God is drawing a picture of redemption for us. You see, we need a redeemer as well. And all the characters in this story picture the great redeemer. How is Jesus revealed in Ruth? Jesus left his father's house. He left his home country to come and to live with us. Jesus faced loneliness, racism, and even death. Jesus took God's Old Testament promise to Abraham that I will be your God and you will be my people and he lived it out. Like Boaz, God the Father devised a plan and God the Son carried it out from beginning to end. Boaz could have legally refused to care for Ruth and Naomi, but he did so with great cost to himself. God the Father and Jesus had no legal obligation to save us as sinners, but He did so because He loved us so, so much. And He did so at a great cost to Himself, absorbing the wrath of God Himself that was reserved for us on the cross. We have been bought not with money, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. 
And we too have an inheritance that is unfading and imperishable. And now nothing, not even death, will separate us from the love of our Redeemer. Friends, that's the gospel. It's an amazing thing. His grace is restoring. One pastor said, The story of Ruth begins with famine and ends with riches. It begins with sorrow and ends with joy. It begins with loneliness and ends with a family. It begins with despair and ends with hope. It begins with death and ends with life. It begins with a widow and ends with a marriage. It begins with a corpse and ends with a baby. It begins in Moab and ends in Bethlehem. The Redeemer changes the beginning to the end. Friends, we are all like Ruth. We've all gone astray. We have all left Eden. And there is an offer for us to return if we approach the Redeemer like Ruth did. Helpless, the cry to the Redeemer, spread your garment over me. Friends, we contribute nothing to our salvation but our helplessness. There are not ten steps to salvation. There is one. Receive and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Redeeming grace restores joy that settled delight through Christ that all is well, that eternity and time are safe in his hands, that in him you have everything you need to make it through and that he deserves our praise in every situation. Let me close with this story. Steve Hainer, a friend of some of you in this church, he was most recently the president of Columbia Seminary. He died last year of pancreatic cancer during Easter week 2014. His writings were compiled in a book called Joy in the Journey, and it is all about what it means to walk in honesty with joy, even through great grief. This is how one person described him. He said, God's love is never scarce. God's capacity to meet us in our pain or sorrow, our confusion or sin, is best seen and experienced when we seek the one whose love is abundantly far more than all we ask or imagine. Joy is life set in that reality. Nothing is excluded including sufferings and even death, and all is being remade. Breathe deeply the love and mercy, truth and justice of Jesus Christ, for this is the broad place where we find the God of joy for life and even for death. In Jesus' name, Steve gave us room to breathe. He gave us joy in the midst of wrestling and questioning and seeking and hurting and hoping because he was living, living what? A resurrection life. Isn't that a beautiful description? I don't think there's a greater compliment for anyone to look at our lives and to see that we are joyful while grieving. We are living resurrected lives. The story of Ruth, the story of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful story. That in Ruth, we see a grieving life redeemed by grace, resulting in joy restored. Lord, thank you that this is the story of the Bible. 
that because we were kicked out of the garden, we have grieving lives, but that the entire Bible is a story of redeeming grace. And so give us great certainty that our joy is being restored and will be restored through the renewing and the restoration of all things through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Thank you. Remind us of this in this season. In Jesus' name, amen.